Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. Just representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. So excited for today's show with Randy Orm. Randy has been on the podcast before. She is a true legend. You'll hear in a little bit. A little rundown for athletic background. It is nothing short of phenomenal. But today we're talking about more than that. We're talking about what happens when things go wrong. She DNF'd the Leadville 100, a race that she has been looking forward to for for years, years and years. And what happens when that happens? So we do an anatomy of a DNF, and it's not fun, and it gets a little emotional. But at the same time, it's extremely instructive. When I say it's not fun, I mean, this conversation, Randy's a, a ball of fun. She's absolutely enthusiastic and so positive, and she's just so awesome. Obviously, it's not fun for her to go through it, as you'll hear in detail. Uh, it was a uh, really hard thing. There's no question about it. And we dive all the way into it. So thank you, Randy, for being so open and honest and frank and your normal, enthusiastic self. So let's get into it with Randy Orm. All right, we are back again with Randy Orm. Randy, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Always great to talk with you. I really appreciate you coming on. So we talked uh, a couple weeks ago, like, hey, after Leadville 100, it'd be great if you could come on. I know the race didn't go the way that you had planned, but sometimes that makes for an even more impactful conversation. So we'll definitely get into that. I did a little quick intro before everyone is hearing this. But with that said, before we get started, you have such a wide array of experiences and, and things like that. So can you give us like the little little two-minute elevator pitch of, of, of what you've been up to as an athlete over uh, the past couple of decades? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a longtime lover of running. I fell in love with it as a kid, so it's always been in my life for the most part um, to a certain degree. Um, I have been a run coach and a personal trainer for nearly two decades so 19 years. Um, I am a lover of all types of running. So I do both race on the roads, trails, ultras. I hike in the mountains. I climb mountains. I love to experience it all. Um, road PRs, 303 marathons. So close to that sub three, 123 half. So I do like to go back and forth between the long, slow stuff on the trails. And then I like to mess around and get fast on the roads too. And I will just, I'll always love it both. Um, I like to get involved in lots of different things. I'm also an Ironman triathlete. I, um, I'm a three-time ultra marathon champion. So I do like to get competitive on those trails. I'm also a obstacle course racing champion, although I haven't done that in probably a decade. Um, And then I'm a bit of a mountaineer as well. So I really enjoy taking on a new challenge. I really enjoy being a student of the sport and exploring the entire um, endurance sport family. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to push myself to the limits in a variety of different ways. Um, Outside of running, I'm a mama of five and that will always come first. So it's really fun to get creative and move my schedule around um, and fit in my joy and love of running and share that with others when I can in between being the CEO of my house. 
so glad that you did that because that was much better than I would have done. I knew all those things, but you said it so concisely and efficiently. That was remarkable. <laughs> it's like you've done this before. Um, yeah, Thanks. that's Thanks, Matt. certainly a, a wide array of experiences. And it, it really uh, takes your breath away when you hear all the things that you've been able to do. And the reason, part of the reason that I wanted you to do that was because this kind of sets the stage for the conversation we're going to have because you had the unfortunate experience something that you weren't, that maybe you didn't expect to have happen. It's certainly something that if someone was looking from the outside that they may not expect to have happen is that you actually did not finish Leadville. You did, you got a DNF at the Leadville 100. And it's part of the reason we're talking today. And this wasn't part of the plan we spoke two weeks ago, but definitely we feel like it's something that we that is an important conversation to have is that this sort of thing can happen to all sorts of people, no matter their experience level, no matter their fitness level. And not only is that an important thing to make people aware of, but also how we bounce back from that, how we handle that sort of thing. So thank you so much for coming on and talking about this because I know for a lot of people, we talk about the highs and why wouldn't we? You know, those are those can be exciting and inspirational and motivational. But along with that, this is also real life. Absolutely. And we we don't get to have the highs and we don't experience the peaks of our performances with, without also experiencing the lows and the hard moments and the heartbreak and the devastation. Many of us, when you line up to something like a hundred miler, the longer those races are, there is a higher risk for things to go wrong. So I fully acknowledge that there's always a chance, no matter the distance that something can go wrong. But yes, this really kind of came like a thief in the night and took me by surprise. Um, And with that, there comes lots of lessons. Um, I didn't reach my goal, but because of the experiences I had, some of which, you know, we're going to share tonight. I, I'm a, I'm a stronger athlete for it. And I'm able to, sometimes we don't want to be, these aren't the, of course I'm disappointed. I think I've cried every day this week. I'm crying a little less every day. (laughs) Um, because there's, there's disappointment and there's heartbreak, heartbreak. And when you work so hard and put so much into one specific goal and you don't get the outcome that you want, it is devastating, but that doesn't mean that there's not a ton of good takeaways. It doesn't mean that my fitness is lost or that this was all for nothing or that I haven't grown as an athlete and, um, acknowledging that to both myself as well as to everybody else, I think is really important that we just don't share the highlight reels. Um, because really these are the, the times and the opportunities where we can grow the most. Well said. All right. So Leadville 100, was this a race that you had done before? No. So I am a first time Leadville 100 attempter. I have run most of the course. Um, I have been to Leadville 100 run camp a couple of times with, a with, I work with goo. And so they've sent me out there. That, uh, so I have done most of the course, probably about 80% of it. I've run between going to camp twice. And then I also crewed, um, my husband, Graham, who did complete the Leadville 100 back in 2019. So I have experience in Leadville, but this was kind of finally something I've wanted to do for probably about five years. This has been on my radar and this was finally my, uh, tr- it was my turn to give it a go. And when did you decide to, to run this race? Um, 
I would say probably back. So I have a two and a half year old Nash. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a little math here. He was born in 2020, right before the pandemic hit. So probably two years before, probably like 2018, the first time I went to the Leadville run camp and experienced Leadville, the magic of it, the magic of the course. Um, I just kind of got bit by the Leadville bug. And if you go there and you watch a race, anyone can probably attest to what it is I'm talking about. Um, I was actually registered to run Leadville in 2019, but I instead got the huge blessing of um, expecting our caboose, our cute little Nash. Um, and so it's been on right on the forefront of my, of my mind probably since then. Got it. All right. How about for training purposes? When did it become, okay, now we're, now we're training for Leadville? Yeah. Okay. So now uh, let's see, I'm, I'm circling this back to pregnancy because uh, being a postpartum mom, so much of that is I really like to take the proper time to recover postpartum and what I can do endurance versus speed. All of that plays into it as well. And also with my kid's schedule, like, am I out of the crazy, am I sleeping as my toddler sleeping through the night? Do I really think that I can bite off this big of a chunk. And so I would, I registered for the race, I want to say in February and my training block started in the spring. So probably like a 20 week training block starting in the spring of this year. Got it. Yeah. And then we should say like with everything that you've done in your life, I mean, you've been, you've been preparing basically at this point, every race that you do, you've been training for for two decades, basically, right? Because it's, you know a lot of that stuff doesn't just disappear. Uh, you can certainly build on a foundation of, of a lot of the work that you've already done. That is for sure. So, so the training block started roughly twenty weeks ago. For a lot of people, me included, Leadville kind of holds this mythical place of like, I've never been there. I've never been anywhere near there. However, it shows up in a lot of running literature, a lot of running books that are extremely popular. So you hear different things to say nothing of just following along with athletes who run the race and the race weekend. And, and as the media landscape, especially in Trail and Ultra, continues to expand, we get bigger pieces of, um, you know, spectating from afar on races like this. So... It's kind of interesting to see how this all plays out. So how, when you're as someone who's experienced the course in a couple of different capacities prior to this training block, how did you start to think about segmenting your training to get ready for this race? And how did that differ from some of the other ultras that you've done in the past? Yeah, really good question. Um, so to give a little more background on what the level 100 is to those who, uh, who are listening, the entire race is above 10,000 feet. Leadville, Colorado is the highest uh, state, highest city in the lower 48, right? And so you've got the is unique- Is it 14,000 feet, the highest point in the race? Just, uh, yeah, just under 14,000 feet. Hope Pass, which we go over not once, but twice- it comes in just under 14,000 feet. Um, and so you're doing the entire race above 10,000 feet. So although I've climbed a lot of mountain peaks and although I've run a hundred miles and a good big handful of other ultras, this kind of combines them all into one very difficult, strenuous course that you really do need to prepare for. So one of my big goals, this training block, which I definitely did a better job than in the past, but maybe, you know, there's always the shoulda, coulda, woulda, was to um, hit more high mountain peaks and do more climbing um, just so that I could be more comfortable running higher. I live just north of Salt Lake City, 
which is just under 5,000 feet. Um, but I've got the Wasatch Mountain Range right in my backyard, trailheads a few miles from my house. So I can get up high pretty quick. So one of my goals this go around was not just to combine those back-to-back long runs, but to make sure that I was running high on tired legs, right? Rather than just running two back-to-back long runs on the trails, I wanted to make sure that the element of getting higher in altitude and then maybe late in a long run, hitting like a big peak so that I wasn't just running far. I was running far and running steep and running high, if that makes sense. So combining those elements and then also checking in with how my body felt at a higher altitude. Yeah, because I'm trying to, if memory serves... It's so it's obviously a hundred mile race. I think it's fourteen thousand feet of climbing. So Correct. to put that into perspective for people, say you go for a ten mile run, if you had fourteen hundred feet of climbing the ten miles, that would be the kind of elevation you were talking about, but over a hundred miles. So that kind of ratio is what we're talking about. So kind of like one hundred and forty feet of elevation gain per one mile run, all while doing it at over ten thousand feet. Of elevation. So not just like, hey, I'm doing this at sea level, that would be a challenging run. That's already a challenging ratio at any elevation, but to do it at 10,000 feet obviously presents quite a challenge. Yes. Yeah, it presents a challenge. And there are, you know, there are a lot of 100 mile races with more elevation gain than that. The main thing is, like you said, is the elevation gain in running at that high altitude. And the Leadville 100 actually has a ton of actual running in it. So the tricky thing is you marathon fitness actually transfers over well, if that's your base, because there's some races, the focus is more lots of climbing with lots of hiking mixed in with some running. Whereas at the Leadville 100, because the time cutoffs are so tight. And that's the other thing I should mention. There's a 30 hour time cutoff. If you take longer than 30 hours, you uh, get a DNF. Most hundred mile races um, 32 to 36 to 40 plus hours to finish it. So that's another element of the prestige of Leadville. It's high, it's gnarly, and it has a tight cutoff. So when you're training, and I also actually had an athlete running the Leadville 100, you've got to combine, you're working together to combine multiple factors of training because you're, you need your endurance up, which obviously you do for any hundred miler, but there's more running in this than most. And then you need to be able, you need to be able to run, climb, hike, repeat, repeat, repeat. <laughs> so you mentioned before you wanted to make sure that you're practicing the climbing and that you're practicing the the obviously the, the double long runs is an important step for any person who's getting ready for a hundred miler that is for sure so when you talk about the the elevation gain that you want to get in your runs how did that work for you in terms of the kind of elevation gain um say like you know again i, I like using the like the ratio like the the feet gained per mile and then you're kind of extrapolating it out depending on how long the run would go and also what that looks like right because you can get 150 feet of elevation gain per mile, again, which is an extensive amount of elevation gain, but you can get it in more of a rolling capacity, or you can get it like with one one or two big, big climbs, and then also the big downhills that come off of it, which also can be a huge training stimulus as well. Yeah. So in terms of kind of breaking that down and how that looked, I do like that you also brought up downhill. There's a lot of technical downhill running in Leadville, and you've got to be able to keep your feet moving because... Again, we are also dealing with the element of time. So for the Leadville 100 in regards to getting with the specificity of what I needed to get ready for that race, I would say 
all of the above, A, B, C, and D, mark all the boxes. So um, I do live close to a lot of ski resorts, which is really, really helpful because they've got, um, like I have a favorite eight mile loop that has almost 2000 feet of gain and most of it's runnable. And so I like two of my long training runs were doing three loops on that with a little side peak, right? That was one of my favorite loops. And mentally that was so good for me because you climb steep and then you run rollers and then you get some technical downhill because this Leadville has, has it all. And so you really do have to. So if I was looking at like a linear view of maybe like a six week block and looking at all my long runs, I tried to rotate between runs where I would have a couple of really big climbs. So it would be a lot of hiking and a lot of downhill running. Um, and then the next weekend, maybe we'd switch back to the rollers where it was a couple thousand feet of gain, um, but runnable. So it's really a combination of those factors. And then for me this season, um, Early on, my technical downhill running seemed to be a bit of a weak point for me. I don't naturally, I'm not naturally as agile as I'd like to be on the downhill. I can get really solid at it, but it's a muscle memory thing for me and it's practice and it has to recome back to me every single season. It's, I mean, yes, I get better and better at it, but for having a lot of babies in between, especially with like pelvic stability and re getting all those stabilizing muscles, it's always something that I feel like I'm taking two steps forward and three steps backwards. Um, so this year, one of my big goals was to continue and take that a few steps forward, especially when my legs get tired. And so I did go out of my way to look for long runs. We're like, Oh, Hey, I know on that loop, there's that section. I absolutely hate because it's Rocky downhill. I better do that again. <laughs> and so, um, I went out of way to kind of highlight some weaknesses of mine and make sure that I was rotating those into my long runs as well. And running usually isn't considered a skill sport, right? Like some other sports, like some plays like lacrosse, right? Like that is definitely a skill sport, right? With the, with the obvious caveat of downhill running on technical trails. That is absolutely a skill. So how would you, you, you just did a great job of explaining it. So I'm not going to ask you to do it again, but how would you partition the, or partition is the right word. How would you like put a percentage on building up the skills and the strength to handle it. And you brought up a great point in terms of coming back for pregnancy and making sure that you have the stability available um, for you to use. In addition to just the idea of the, the, just kind of the confidence that comes with it. Cause I, I feel like there's some people who maybe have the skill and have the requisite strength, but who maybe lack, I'm just, I'm <laughs> I'm speaking a big here. I'm talking about me, right? Like I'll go down. I'll get it down. Asking I'm for like, a friend. I'm, asking I'm like, I can't. Yeah. I'm asking for a friend here. Can you help me out? My friend's having some trouble. Um, we're like, I go to these downhills. And I'm like, holy God, like I will go faster up the hill than down the hill. I'm just so terrified that something's going to happen. So how much of it is the skill based with strength and how much of it is the confidence and what's the interplay there? Yeah. Um, so definitely both the confidence and the skill come with practice. I think it's really normal when you haven't done a lot of technical downhill that it gets into your head because you're thinking, I don't want to twist an ankle. I don't want to eat it on the trails. And guess what? We all eat it sometimes. That's just part of becoming a better trail runner is you're going to get bloody and you're going to get scraped up sometimes. Um, in regards to what percentage is actual skill, because you are correct with all with 
almost any other sport, there's this extra skill with soccer, lacrosse, we go on and on where with most running, um, we don't have that extra element of coordination. Well, of course it does require some downhill running is the exception and it definitely takes practice. So here's the thing. If you don't have confidence and belief in yourself, it does not matter if you have the skill because you will foul yourself up. And so you kind of just have to take a risk. You kind of just have to trust yourself and go for it. And now what I always say is when you start out, um, if you're a beginner to like a lower intermediate, you don't have a lot of experience on that downhill running, start out with hiking down it. Just get your feet comfortable with it. Make sure your ankles can go back and forth and in every direction. And let's take that a step back. A lot of that happens in your home. A lot of that happens in the gym with mobility work with strength work for your ankles, for your feet, a lot of like single leg balance work. I cannot stress single leg balance work enough for trail running. Of course, it applies to all running, but you cannot get yourself on a downhill technical trail and expect to do anything really but hike without some extra stability there, without going out of your way. So if you can, one, feel more comfortable with the strength that you develop, two, get out on the trails and practice it, I would say then the skill will come and so will the confidence. So you kind of have to marry them all together. Um, but it does actually require like some check marks, almost like let's have a study book about downhill running. Check, am I doing this? Am I doing this? And so there is a lot of people tend to look straight down right at their feet. The rule of thumb is actually like eight to 10 feet in front of you. So technical downhill running isn't a time really to chat. Um, a lot of times I turn off my music if I'm listening to a podcast and I'm doing an easier run. Um, I'm like, no, this is the time for me to focus and practice. And you kind of, like I said, back to that, you really do just have to go for it. Line upon line though, right? And so you don't just go like a bat out of hell straight from <laughs> out of the gate. But um, I will write technical downhill running into my athletes workout. And I'm like, we're going to, you're going to run for one minute and you're going to hike for three, you know, just take it bit by bit. And slowly over time, you will gain more confidence. And it doesn't feel that way at the beginning. It just feels like, how am I ever going to get good at this? This is something that, that, you know, it's not for me, I guess I hike downhill, but if you can believe in yourself, focus on the strength and then just it's, it's that repetitive muscle memory. Um, you'll, you'll be surprised. I would say a full season you got to give it before you notice improvement. It's not one of those things where you're like, oh, three tempo runs later. Dang, my time's dropping. It's you really do have to give it some time. Gotcha. All right. That's that's really helpful. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, you bet. All right. So how does you mentioned before and I was going to get there anyway, the strength training element played. We're going to talk about the, the double long runs in a second. All right. You, we take it in, in any order you want here. Right. But you talked about the, the elevation gain. Right. Let's talk about the double long runs and how you would incorporate strength and power hiking into that, because I know power hiking can be such an important part here. Right. There's a difference between especially in these ultras, like especially the ones that are maybe are less runnable. The difference between, you know, walking at two miles an hour and walking at three and a half miles an hour. Right. That can be an enormous difference in overall time and, and just ability to make cutoffs or just even get the finish line at all. 100%. So I like to call this type of hiking that you're referring to. Um, I write this in my athletes plan. I, I write this on for myself. I call it hiking with purpose. It's not a break. It's not, you're not wimping out by not being able to run it. You're not like, Oh, I'm, I'm exhausted. Like, Oh, like it's hiking with purpose. You are intentionally 
getting to work while hiking. The ability to hike at a faster speed will allow you to save energy. It'll allow your overall heart rate to drop down, which is tremendously important on these longer endurance events, right? Because then our rate of perceived exertions going down, we're able to last longer. We're able to, in the long run, kind of preserve our energy while still maintaining a reasonable pace. And so everybody's hike with purpose is going to look a little bit different. Um, I don't know if that helps answer your question. I probably can expand on that. Where do you want me to head with that? I guess, how do you, how do you incorporate into your training or do you incorporate into your training or is it just a mindset? Yeah. Um, no, 100% incorporate it into your training. There will be specific long runs, just like with road marathon training. There may, may be a specific long run that may be, you're going to warm up for a few miles and I want tempo effort. The trails are different because they vary so much. So it's mostly effort-based um, unless it's someone has a shorter, faster trail race. It's mostly effort-based. So some days um, I might say, no, I want you to run as much of it as you can. And then other long runs, because this is an ultra, it will specific, I will specifically for myself, for an athlete, you're going to run what's runnable and hike with purpose on every single climb. And hiking with purpose should never feel like a cop out. It should feel like it should feel like a practice. And that's something actually I worked on this year. There is technique to it. Um, it's engaging your core and making sure your knee drive goes up. I like to place my hands on my quads, tuck my head down a little bit and really just zone in and get to work. Um, you can focus on your breathing, kind of take a moment to yourself and then do your best to get your hiney up that mountain while staying kind of calm and focused. So yeah. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. I love that. All right, so let's talk about the double long runs. What does that look like for you in terms of the, some of the mileage you're trying to hit, some of the elevation you're trying to hit, and how you segment them in terms of are they equal length? Is you know, Do you like to do the longer one first or the longer one second? You know, Do you do them in back-to-back weekends? Do you like to have a weekend in between? How do you like to segment them for, for you as you're preparing for Leadville? Yeah, all of the above. Um, but yeah, let me break that down. So there's a couple types of those back-to-back -back long runs that I feel are extremely important to prepare for these longer endurance events. One is going to be, like you mentioned, like a Friday, Saturday or a Saturday, Sunday long run. And what does that look like in terms of in terms of mileage? That's definitely definitely going to be some periodization. So you're going to start way back towards the beginning of your training, and it might be an eight miler and a twelve miler, and then it's going to get a little longer as you you know as you rest and recover and rebuild as far as how long for me, this training cycle, my longest, like 
back to back long days. And I would say to answer, to pause for a moment to answer your question, which one is longer? It doesn't matter. I, I think mentally is where it's the most important. So I like to swap it if that makes sense. And so in one day, depending on their, where we are in my training phase, one might be 20 miles, like with some tempo miles in the middle. So my legs are nice and tired for Saturday morning, if I'm doing Friday. And then the next day, like a 20 and a 15, 20 and 20 is usually the longest I recommend, because again, we're always pushing the limits on not injuring ourselves, but getting ourselves the most prepared that we can. You can't simulate a hundred mile race until you actually do it. There's only so much our body can handle before it has diminishing returns. And so for every athlete, that's going to look a little bit different. I've done this for a long time. I seem to be able to handle mileage better now than I ever have before. I feel like it's something I've earned over years of muscle memory. My longest um, back-to-back, I did do an 18 or a 16 and then a 26. Um, and that mainly it was 26 because it, that was the length of the loops I was doing and that had the elevation that I wanted. So I will tweak around with those numbers. So that's Type one of long runs are those Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday. You can do it in the middle of the week, whatever works for your schedule. I've got nurses. I'm like, okay, well, we're doing yours on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. You know, it's it's just. I hear that. During the school year, I do mine on Thursday, Friday. I'm yep, like, I need to be absolutely. home on the weekends. Yep. Thursday, Friday has become a new favorite around our here too, Matt. So I feel that. And then the other important one, well, there's two more in the long run family preparing for ultras. Um, just speaking in generalities is um, a double day long run. And so, because when you run a hundred miles, you run in the morning, you run in the afternoon, you run in the evening, you run in the middle of the night. And so I think that varying the times of day that you can get out for those runs, you uh, recognize strengths and weaknesses of your digestive system, um, of your energy levels. And I think it's really important that you go out there at different temperatures, different times of day, how much food you have in your system, all of those things um, impact you and you need to be able to take notes and recognize like, Oh, that doesn't work very well for me. You know, maybe I I need to pivot or change something. And so I also think that, um, those double runs in the same day are extremely important. And again, that's going to depend on your level of athlete and where you are in your training block. Um, I missed, I got, I twisted my ankle really bad in a 50 mile race in the middle of my uh, second to last kind of big block. So I missed one of those runs. So my longest one of those, I almost need to pull up my final surge. I want to say I did like a same day. I think my total mileage for that day was like in the thirties. So, you know, it was like a 15 and a 17 or something like that. Um, so yeah, um, to give you some specifics on what I did this build, that's what I did. A 15 and a 17. That is tough. That's funny. I was listening to the Some Work All Play podcast this week. And they touched on that. That was one of the things that David and Megan Roche mentioned in their podcast. They're talking about how like they like to do everything before they give it to their athletes. So they kind of guinea pig themselves. And I'm sure you do the same thing um, before they give it to their athletes. And that was funny because they're both said that like that was one thing that neither of them could do. They couldn't do the double on the long run day. So they'll do like say do the long run and then go back out. They're both like we both tried it and it's been absolutely horrendous for both of us. They don't they don't actually don't put it in their athletes. They're like plans. nope, if I can't do it. No, I don't. I that and that's fair. If you can't do it, then you definitely like you maybe shouldn't have your athletes do it. Both times I've done that in my two hundred builds, I've done the second one at night on the treadmill. <laughs> 
for it just in case. And honestly, it's mental confidence. I don't necessarily think that you have to do that. I don't think that runs a deal breaker. For me, it's been a big mental confidence booster. And so you're also going to look at your athletes and where their mental confidence is. I had one who was very, very nervous for running at night. And I'm like, well, then we got to do it. Because if you if you're nervous about it, you don't want to go into race day with all of those unknowns. You want to know how you're going to respond to it. That way you can even if you respond negatively, when we know how we respond, we can take that that knowledge and that information and we can prepare ourselves properly, right? That's that mental mindset. Absolutely. So let's talk about the the, the food and nutrition preparation for this, all right? You've been doing this for a long time. How does it look like for you in terms of like dialing that in and has it changed or has it been pretty consistent over the last few years? And, and um, yeah, this is not like you haven't done these sorts of races in the past. So what does your nutrition look like? How do you prepare or how did you prepare this time around? And, and has it been pretty consistent with what you've done in the past? Yeah, it has been pretty consistent with what I've done from the past. I feel like I have kind of narrowed in on what works for me and it seems to have not failed me. <coughs> cough, cough, blood bills. So there may be, there may be some pivoting. So typically what I do, um, my goal is 250 to 300 calories an hour. I do that in combination with real solid food. In addition to goo products, I've used them for years. My, my favorite is that it's called, it's ultra endurance roctane. It's a drink mix. So I always have a handheld with 250 calories. It's got carbohydrates, amino acids, electrolytes, and a little bit of caffeine in it. Uh, sometimes I'll, sw- I sw- I'll sw- swap back and forth. It's just 35 milligrams of caffeine per serving. So it's just kind of enough to keep it going. Um, so I'll switch back and forth between that and real food. The real food that I use is I kind of stick to the same products. I have learned through a couple of trial and error bad experiences, not getting sick during a race, but getting sick afterwards, that I can't do the smorgasbord thing that some athletes can do. You go into an ultra aid station and you're like, would you like M&M's, potatoes, watermelon, jerky, PBJ, candy? Do you want a shot of this or a shot of that? I, I have my few things that I stick with. I do really well with bananas and potatoes, um, PBJs. Um, there's like fig bars and stroop waffles. Those are kind of, I, I have my few things Salty things I like. I try to stick to more salty. I do great with like broth typically, although that's what I barfed up all night long with, you know, so maybe I don't do that anymore. I don't know. Um, and then I, um, so that's kind of, I rotate between those things. And usually at the beginning I handle goose and the sweet stuff really well. And usually kind of halfway through, I'll try to switch to, a little stuff that's a little more salty, um, just because it seems to be more palatable later on in races because a huge part of it, and that's I'll circle into that in a moment. That's I lost my appetite and I couldn't hold anything down. And so you're always, and usually if I lose my appetite, I just pivot and I try something else and it works this time. Nothing worked. Um, Backing up to pre-race nutrition, I do carb load for three days. I use the classic carb loading formula. It seems to work really well for me. Um, That's what I normally do. I also use real Redmond sea salt instead of salt tabs or um, chewable salt. Um, I really, really like that. I just lick it. So that's the one thing I forgot to do. it, I, we had a pre-race meeting, pre-crew meeting. We all talked. I said, make me lick my salt. If my stomach ever starts hurting, if I lick salt, it always feels better 20 minutes later. And I couldn't find it in my pack as I was getting sick. And I, they heard me out of an aid station and I forgot it. And so 
we, that was the one thing and it's not, you know, definitely not pointing fingers and who knows really what happened. We can, we, we can hash over it for hours and we'll never know. But the only thing I did different is I didn't take my salt and I ended up very sick. So that's, that's like, that's the question mark. Yeah. Right. I can imagine. All right. So let's talk about you're going into the race. What were your goals for the race and how do you normally set up goals for things like this? Okay. So I had two main goals for the Leadville 100. More than anything, I do love to be competitive. There's a very competitive field and I fully recognize and I've I've never done an Alpine Mountain 100. So my main, I did have an A goal, which I'll share in a moment. But more than anything, I just wanted to finish. And, I, and I've never really gone into an ultra with that approach. But I just wanted to be a Leadville 100 finisher with all my heart. So my A goal, because of that overriding, overarching goal, my A goal was maybe more conservative than I was trained for. But I just felt really good about that. I looked at all my numbers and I thought maybe I could do it quicker. So so my A goal in this... Um, you know, it wasn't something I shared really beforehand with anybody, but kind of my crew, you know, it's, it's vulnerable to shoot your goals out there. And, and it's, um, at times I feel like, sure, share them. Why the heck not? But at other times, it, I think it is okay to hold them close to your chest. So, um, I, my A goal was to go under 25 hours, which it, at the Leadville 100, you get this special big old silver buckle. Um, but more than anything on paper, it seemed like a reasonable goal with all of my training, with how good I felt at altitude. I had been up past 13,000 feet um, on more than one occasion and felt like a million bucks. And so I, um, we felt really, really good on paper with, with that spreadsheet. And of course, on a course like Leadville 100, that's not like it's, I'm going to do a 13 minute mile the whole time. That's Look at these, this buttery easy, easy section. You can run a nine minute mile here. You're going to do a 22 minute mile up Hope Pass. You're going to do a 17 minute mile power hike up the power line section. So everything was like broken down and segmented. Now that was my A goal, but the overarching theme was those are the paces that you can keep if they feel easy and manageable. I mean, of course, nothing feels easy. That's probably a bit of an exaggeration. But if I look down at my watch, my heart rate's reasonable. And I truly, I can chat with the person next to me and I'm present and I don't ever feel like I'm suffering. Then let's hang on to those paces and see how I feel. And then we'll, once I pick up my pacer at mile 62, if I'm feeling good, we'll pick up the pace and we'll see what we can do. Um, So that, my A goal was that under 25 hour goal. And then the overarching goal is if I get sick, if my knee gets tied, if I roll an ankle, if things just go really far south, then I'll just finish with a smile and with gratitude. It didn't even cross my mind that like not finishing was an option. I mean, of course it does, but you really can't go into a race this hard and think, what if? That's not the right mindset to go into. We all can fully acknowledge that anything can happen in any race, but you do need to go in with full belief. I feel like that's very important. As an athlete, you have to believe in yourself. You don't need to go to the what ifs. We all know that they exist. So those were my two plans. I had my twenty sub 25 hour plan. And then I had, well, if that doesn't feel manageable or something goes a little bit south, then I'll pull back a little bit and just rally and get across that finish line in under 30 hours. All right. And did you envision running with anybody in particular? Did you know people in the race that you felt were roughly the same fitness level or roughly the same goal? Or was this kind of like a more of a solo venture between you and your crew? In regards to individual athletes, that wasn't my focus. This was my race. And 
sure, there's some gals out there that maybe you could compare me to and say, oh, maybe she could keep up with so-and-so or maybe she could, but that the, the plan was run your own race. Now on paper, um, those splits looked like on a good day, maybe I could be in the top 10 and I was comfortably right in that range until I got sick. And, um, but I wasn't concerned about the numbers, to be honest. Um, I was I just, just, I just, even though, even then, even with that, said, I just meant it more of like, from like a social perspective, sometimes it's just nice to be able to be around people who you're like, Hey, we're kind of around the same thing. Maybe if we're out there together, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats kind of situation. Oh Yeah. Yeah. Not really. I mean, no, I wouldn't say that because I've gone to camp a couple of times. I did know a lot of people who were running it. So I was really excited to see friends out there. And it was so much fun. That was the highlight of the day was seeing friends on the course, running with them, them passing me, me passing them, us coming the other way, high fives, seeing people I knew in the different aid stations. So I was definitely really excited to just see other awesome humans out there that I knew, but I, I didn't, I, I made the assumption that I'd most likely kind of just be keeping to my my own um, pace and rhythm and that um, if I ran with people, great. And if I didn't, that was good, too. All right. So we talked about all the race prep, which says I, I love diving into that stuff all the time. But let's talk. Let's talk about race day. OK, so. Yes. We we know that the, that things end up going south for you. You finish. You, you ran roughly 70 miles of the race. So when. Did you start to tell or things start to percolate that <laughs> things were maybe going from the normal, like, you know, tough things that happen in ultras to all of a sudden, okay, no, this is maybe this is a step beyond that. This is abnormal. This is not the, you know, within the, the, the consistent range of, all right, this is just the stuff that we have to work through. This is beyond that. Beyond that, yeah, let's let's get down to the juicy nitty gritty. Let's talk about when things went south and I, I met my maker out on the trail. <laughs> so um, I'm going to pull it back to the halfway point. I think that's a good place to start. So the halfway point, the 50-mile mark after you get up and over Hope Pass and you get to the aid station at the 50-mile mark, I came in at 11 hours and 46 minutes. Don't quote me on that. That was what was on my watch, but I think I haven't, I haven't looked at my splits. So give or take a minute. And I was freaking thrilled. I'm like, I just ran 50 miles above 10,000 feet and went over Hope Pass and 11 hours and 46 minutes. And I felt on top of the world. I mean, I felt like a boss. I was just I was elated. In fact, two times, maybe three before that, I'd actually gotten a smidgen emotional when there was no one around. Um, just kind of like having like a moment where the trails are so gorgeous and I'm present. And I was just like, this is my day. Like I am just, I'm here. Like this is happening. You know, I just felt that good. So I rolled into my 50 mile, I rolled into my aid station, ate some food, ate a protein chocolate milk, pounded that in a a bunch of other food and took off pretty quick, feeling like a million bucks. So now we're at mile 50 and this is, I'm building up to where things go south. I will answer your question here. I promise. So you head out of, it's called May Queen. That's the name of the aid station. They used to allow pacers from that point until two years ago because this next section is just otherworldly difficult. So you leave May Queen. I've just gone over Hope Pass once at almost 13,000 feet. You come up and over Hope Pass, back down, and then you run a couple miles three more miles, four more miles out to that 50 mile mark. 
Then you turn around and you repeat the whole race. Okay. And so I leave May Queen feeling great. Mile 51, amazing. Mile 52, amazing. In fact, I'm passing people. Everyone's hiking at this point. I'm running and I'm like almost wondering, should I be slowing down? But I felt great. And there were others running. And I was at this point starting to high five people because you've still got people on the out and back. So I'm two miles up May Queen, two miles into the second half of the race. And then you've got other people two miles from getting to that finish. So we're up four miles apart. Does that make sense? I started seeing friends, high fives, hugs. I saw my athlete. We both started crying because I'm like, we're doing this, you know, you know, just this really great, like wonderful moments out there. Then on the steep climbing of Hope Pass starts. When you are inbound on Hope Pass, meaning you're back on your way into the finish line, the backside of Hope Pass is a lot steeper. The switchbacks are gnarly. You do the same amount of elevation gain in one less mile to put that in perspective. So that's a lot when it's a couple mile climb. So you, and then it, we had a, I did have quite a gnarly storm on top of Hope Pass on my way in, pelting rain, blowing me sideways. Um warm gloves, like winter coat on. And I mean, it was coming down and I'm five, three. I don't, I'm a pretty small gal. And I was up there with men and who were like standing firm and I'm like getting blown over. So I got my poles out anyway. So that's just to back up. That's inbound. So now when I'm coming back, the storm had passed, but it was very muddy. So it's getting really steep switchbacks. So it's just a little bit of work. So I started feeling pretty crappy climbing up hope this past the second time. My goal um, splits on that was to do like a 23 minute mile, 23, 25 minute mile. Um, That seemed to be comfortable with me on the way there. I did it just under 20 minute mile pace, but that was again, less steep. And that felt really great. So we knew I'd slow down at least five minutes per mile on the way back. I'd done that double crossing before. I was expecting it to be hard. I was expecting to go to dark places. So at this point, it's really freaking hard but I was prepared for that. So it wasn't anything that I was necessarily concerned about, but I was chuckling by the amount that I was slowing down. My watch splits uh, clicked and I, and I did a 33 minute mile on the first mile of the climb. And I just started laughing out loud. (laughs) I'm like, all right, I'm in a rough place. I'm fine. We're just going to, we're just going to grind this out. So I was getting a little worried because I had tried to eat and I had almost like, I couldn't really eat what I was supposed to. So instead of having like an entire goo, I had like maybe a quarter of it because that was better than nothing. I found some chip crumbs that, um, salt and vinegar chips that, uh, one of my, somebody, one of my pastries gave me, Keith, shout out to you. I don't know if I would have gotten top of the mountain without those chips. So I just, those were crumbling all over me, but I mean, it got dark, Matt. I mean, I met my maker. I was praying in it into every religion. It got dark, but everyone around me was in the same pain. No one was talking. We were all just grinding it out. I had the real honor. I did this section. Um, we all love Sally McRae, the yellow runner who's in the middle of this incredible, this is like her third hundred miler in like the last six weeks. So including bad running, water. Yeah. Including bad water, which is 135 miles. And then she took on angels crest. And then two weeks later she took on level her, her and I ran together off and on, um, for a large section of the race. Um, we share, um, she's been one of my biggest running idols forever. I, I had no idea I'd run run into her out there. Um, I had, we share the, 
you know, we both lost our moms younger and that's kind of the, her, her whole purpose for this really neat thing she's doing. And so we had connected a little bit on the trails and she, she caught up with me and we exchanged a few words and, and the, the same thing with the guy behind us and the three of us. I mean, there, there wasn't any talking or frivolities. It was like, just hang in there, you know? And so that was on my way up Hope Pass. And, um, I got to the top of the mountain. I knew I'd feel better, but just for, for a little laugh, this is how much pain I was in. I not pain as in physical, like muscles, just as in feeling it, you know, just going through silly putty, right? Like every step was effort. My last mile was a 44 minute mile. Ladies and gentlemen, I took 45, 44 minutes to do the last mile to get to the second, to the top of Hope Pass. So I got to the top, took a deep breath, said a little prayer of gratitude and just hurried my way back down to the aid station. They've got, this is where things went south. So I wasn't feeling good, but I was like, well, of course it's hard. I'm fine. I'm going to feel, I knew I'd feel better when I got to the top, which I did immediately headed back down. Um, there's an aid station just past the top of Hope Pass with llamas. If you don't know the llamas are there, you will think you're hallucinating because there's llamas in the middle of this mountain and it's just this beautiful pass. They've got an aid station up and the llamas take everything up on the aid station. So to make a very long story a little more brief, I, at the aid station, because I was having a hard time eating, I took a moment to, I'm like, I'm going to load up on calories before I head back down the mountain and get, pick up my pacer at Twin Lakes, which is mile 62. So I'm about 55 miles in and I stop and I have a big thing of hot broth. It's heaven on earth. It's manna from the gods. Doesn't get any better. Hot broth late into an ultra race on top of a mountain. So I take a thing of hot broth with noodles. I took a shot of ginger ale, a shot of Coke. I grab my poles. I'm about to leave. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have one more thing of one more cup of noodles. So I chug another cup of noodles. This is maybe what started it. I ate it all very fast. I mean, it was like three minutes of probably 500 calories. Just chug, chug, go, go. They hand me my poles. I take off to start running. I take two steps. I've got aid station workers all around me. I have never had anything like this happen. Not even like with the stomach flu, literally like a thief in the night out of the middle of nowhere. I'm like, I'm going to bark. I take two steps off the trail and just start projectile vomiting nonstop until nonstop until there was bile to, you know, TMI. So it was so really everything rough. that you just took in was all gone. It was gone. Everything I probably took in for the last couple hours was yeah, gone. That's a good to point. Be yeah. Um, and so I tr- I threw up, threw up, took fetal position for a moment, you know, took a beat and stood back up and just started taking off. And I, I, I just was like, well, I feel better now. Can I, I gotta get down to the mountains to my team. Yeah, please Let, stop me. Um, you know, anyone who's thrown up, I get not not including like you know, I've I've, I've had too much to drink, throw up, but like yeah, that yeah. kind of throw up, or like you know, you've stomach flu or something like that, yeah. like th- you know, tossing your cookies over and over again is an exhausting experience. Right? It's just it it takes so much out of you to say nothing of the physical exertion you just put yourself through. You just mentioned that you like did that and you w- went back out on the trail. What is it like just from like the exertion that comes with that sort of thing? Or is it a little bit more just kind of like involuntary? It's just happening as opposed to like that kind of crippling experience that you get when you throw up when you're sick or something like that. Yeah. You know, for me, it was pretty crippling. Um it didn't feel like a normal post-race uh, vomiting experience. I mean, I was like convulsing, shivering. It was very unpleasant, but I was just like, well, I'm done. I, I was in my brain. I'm thinking, oh no, I just took 
an extra hour to get up to the Tapahoe Pass. Now I'm taking 10 minutes because I'm throwing up. I've got to get back on track. Instead of just like pausing and taking a beat, I think initially I panicked a little and was like, well, I just got to get my butt down the mountain. And actually I was really grateful, kind of what you just did. Like, hey, pause, let's talk about this. Same thing happened. An aid station, and the medic came over to me and he said, hey, no, how you doing? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm I, I'm. I'm hanging Not in there. Not great, Bob. You know? Not great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wrong question, Bob. Wrong question. <laughs> and he said, would you consider taking a Zofran? It's an anti-nausea medication. I'd feel much better about you leaving the aid station if you would take an anti-nausea and just wait an extra five minutes just so that we can make sure that you don't throw up again. And I said, I'm fine. And he said, Will you reconsider? And I just took a beat and I said, okay, I'll take the Zofran. I will wait the extra five minutes. So he had me pause, put the medicine under my tongue. He brought me a glass of water. He said, when you leave the aid station, please don't start running again. I want you to hike and slowly sip two ounces of water at a time until this is gone. And then if you don't feel like you're going to throw up, you can go ahead and you can start running again. He's like, will you do that for me? And he was so sweet. We had a little moment together and I said, yes, I can do that. And so I took the Zofran, which I like, that felt so stupid. That in and of itself felt a little bit like defeating because I, I'm like, no, I'm fine. It was just a random throw up. I don't need medicine. I'm fine. You know, like I'm fine. I got, I got 50 more miles to run. I got 45 more miles to run. So I did that. Actually, it felt a lot better. I, I hiked probably for almost a mile. Um, and then I threw away, I put my little cup in my pack kind of took a deep breath, um, you know, took a moment to kind of take a body inventory and thought, you know, I'm going to run again. And this is mentally where things started to unravel a little bit. I never, at this point, I wasn't thinking I'm not going to finish, but one thing that I probably should have mentioned earlier, I have, you know, I'm a long winded gal, um, is I did get a surprise visit from my menstrual cycle the night before. It wasn't supposed to start for a few more days. Now, hormonally, I will circle back to this. Hormonally, I was kind of grateful because I'm thinking, okay, athletic performance is much better on your cycle than that low hormonal phase like right before, right? And so initially, I thought, awesome. However, I was gifted with the heaviest cycle I've probably had in a year and a half. So to be perfectly frank, up to this point, I had taken Four, in the middle of the run, I had taken four hikes into the wilderness off the course to change my tampon because I could not make it to the next aid station. So now, can I say that that element had anything to do with me getting sick? No, but it was an unusually heavy cycle. And that in and of itself is a little bit exhausting. And so I also realized I had that situation on my hands that needed immediate attention. I had already... um had to stop at an earlier aid station and get help cleaning up. That's how bad it was. I mean, going down my legs. So I did have that one element, but I, you know, I took it with stride and I felt so good. I thought, ah, we can deal with this. But now I'm moving down the mountain. I've just thrown up. I'm an hour behind. I'm worried that I haven't held any calories down. I'm looking for my headlamp and I can't find it. And night is coming and I'm doing math and I'm like, I've got to run fast down this mountain or I am going to end up on the trails in the dark. At this point, I'm still with 
kind of the front quarter of the race. And so we're spread out. You're not with everyone. And so there's not really, I mean, occasionally you pass someone or someone passes you. So I get going and I'm starting, I'm starting to feel a little bit of panic. I'm like, I just need to get to mile 62. That's where my crew is, get some food in me, take care of the situation at hand. Um, just kind of take a beat. I had thrown up so heavily. I actually like peed my pants like that. It was rough, Matt. It, it, it got, it went from a high to a low pretty quick. So I just needed a fresh change of clothes, a hug (laughs) and some solid food and my headlamp really, really bad. So I start booking it down the mountain and honestly, I felt fine. So my pace is moving pretty quick, but it's just getting progressively darker and darker. So then my pace is slowing down because this section is extremely technical downhill running full circle here. And you've got to be able to see what's in front of you. I had a couple people pass me and some that I knew and said, Oh my gosh, like you don't have a headlamp. And then do you want me to stay with you? And I'm like, I could never ask somebody to do that in a race like this. Every second, every minute counts, you know, and while I appreciate the kindness, that's the trail community for you. That is the beauty of the trail community. I said, no, I'm fine. You know, we'll be just got a couple miles to the aid station. Um, so I did not get off out of the forest before it went pitch black. And so I couldn't run anymore. Um, So now I'm additionally just trying to stay calm and not get frustrated because I've been slowed down and now I don't have my headlamp. And what a rookie mistake. I mean, come on, Randy. Did you forget it or did you just figure that you'd be at 62 by the time it got dark? A little bit of both. So I figured I would be at 62 way before it got dark. But when I was leaving Hope Pass, they had mentioned, do you want your headlamp? And I thought, you know what? I had this little feeling in the back of my head. Oh, those damn feelings, you know, like grab your headlamp, Randy. But I had a friend who actually wasn't part of our crew. It was a little bit weird. I got kind of rushed out a little too soon from, um, from Twin Lakes and to, it was a bit of an oversight. It was, uh, originally I had not planned on taking it, but I started, I did have that thought in the back of my mind and I threw it out there, but Again, they're trying to get you out of there quick. You know, I, I give myself 10 minutes at that aid station and and I was just trying to, you know, keep moving because I have found um, for myself as well as many athletes that getting in and out of those aid stations while well, take care of yourself, of course, but don't don't doodle daddle in those aid stations too long. Um, your muscles get stiff. Your mind gets soft. I think it's important for that continued forward motion. So I made a mistake. Should have grabbed my headlamp. It was a big oversight and I paid for it big time. So I had to hike, uh, the those last few two miles because I couldn't see anything and I couldn't fall, you know, that's not worth it. And I was still hours ahead of the cutoff. And I thought, well, there goes my 25, but that's okay. I feel good. I got, at this point, I'm like, I got my throw up out. I'm all better. At this point it was get to twin lakes at mile 62, get your pacer, get some clean, dry clothes on because that was real uncomfortable to be honest. And I was just a smelly, gross mess. And at that point, it just sounded like a nice reset, fresh clothes, fresh food, grab your pacer and get on out of there. So, um, I got to twin lakes, mile 62, actually feeling solid. Um, I don't know. What do you want to ask from there? All right. So You've like at this point, despite everything that's going on, you've rebounded like classic ultra fashion. You're at the depths, and then 
miracle upon miracles, they're coming back, right? It's so funny, like talking to ultra runners and then trying to transpose some of these <laughs> lessons onto like normal everyday road runners. You're like, these things just don't happen to us. Be like, you know, it's like you're going down, you're going down, you're going down, and it's over. Um, but here you are, you rebound again. But obviously, the biggest issue here is like, no matter how good you're feeling, you are in a significant caloric deficit. Yeah. Miles and miles in the making. And were you, you know, were you able to, you know, because what, what happened with that? Because obviously, that's like the thing hanging over this, no matter how good you're feeling going into Twin Lakes, like, it's not like you're going to be finishing the last 38 miles without some serious, you know, calories coming in. No, and I, it was a big concern. You know, of course, I'm thinking, crap, you are in a gnarly deficit and you have got to fix that. And the thing with calorie deficits on these long ultras, for some it's quick, but a lot of times it takes a couple hours to kind of come back and bite you in the butt because for a myriad of factors, you know, and, um, and I knew I was approaching a, a potentially disastrous situation but I had tried to eat going into Twin Lakes and I just, I was having a hard time. So my plan was get into Twin Lakes. I knew it was going to be bad, but I thought if I can just eat some solid food in Twin Lakes and get out of there with my pacer, I can hike for a while. I got into Twin Lakes over two hours before the cutoff. I, I just figured reset, recalibrate. You'll slowly be able to eat again. Cause I just figured I needed to let my stomach settle because I had just thrown up. That was just a few miles before, you know? And so I, I, in my brain, I was still hopeful. I was still optimistic. I knew that, that I was gambling a little bit, but I also, that I was doing the best I could with the situation. So when I got into twin lakes, I thought I explained to my team what happened and, um, they went and got me a big thing of potatoes and I was able to eat all of those, I was able to eat my entire thing of potatoes. I had probably four ounces of roctane, which has electrolytes, which isn't a ton. And I had some ginger ale. So I was able to eat a little bit of the hodgepodge of my normal stuff. I picked up my pace, my first pacer. Keith, the cool thing about Leadville is your pacers are allowed to be your bro. And what that means, this does not apply to all races. You have to be careful because you need to follow the rules. Some races, all your pacers can do is be next to you, support you. In Leadville, they can actually carry some of your supplies. So Keith is a big, strapping, strong guy. So he took, made my pack really light, took my warm jacket, took my warm gloves, took my extra food and water. So basically my pack was light. I had just eaten a couple hundred calories. I had dry clothes on. I got a kiss from my honey. I got high fives. I, you know, you, there's, there is a power. There's a force inside these aid stations. Everybody wants you to succeed and you can feel it. It's palpable. So between dry clothes, a little bit of calories, my crew, and that the vibe of Twin Lakes, it's a special place to be. I was geared up. I had, it had not crossed my mind one time that I was going to throw up again or that I wouldn't finish. I realized that I may, unless I could really pick up the pace and rally after like this few steep climbs we have left, my, my that angle was out and I was fine with that. I was just present and taking it in, I was taking in the Leadville experience. So then we left Twin Lakes happy and really optimistic. And that's where crap hit the fan. <laughs> <laughs> how quickly, how quickly after Twin Lakes did, did, did you end up having pretty much a repeat of what happened after Hope Pass? Really quick, unfortunately. So we, we left uh, Twin Lakes. I felt great. Keith and I are chatting. I'm I'm all about it. And I'm like, I don't feel, and, and just, I start running right away and right away. I'm like, I don't feel like I'm going to throw up again. 
And, you know, and he's like, it's fine. Let's just slow down and hike it out for as long as you need. And I would say within, gosh, I, I should ask Keith before I'm going to do a recap tomorrow. So there, it's only a, was it an eight mile section that I was, that I was doing 62 to 70. Yeah. Eight miles, probably in a mile, probably a mile in. I had the same situation that happened to me at mile 55, same thing. And it came on quick out of the middle of nowhere, side of the trails, throwing up everything, everything that I had just consumed. And that's when I started to get worried because again, all I was thinking about was what you mentioned just a few minutes ago, Matt was deficit. You've got to get yourself out of this deficit. Like you've got to hold something down. Yeah, You can't go like the last 50 miles of the race without any nutrition. You just can't. It doesn't matter how tough you are mentally. It doesn't matter how fit you are. It doesn't matter how bad you want it. You can't conjure up food, you know, out of thin air. And so that's the first time I thought, oh no, man, like I got, I have got, we've got to figure this out. So then, um, it seemed to be if I walked really, really slow, the nausea, um, it, it would go back down. So I would give myself a second and then I'd start running again. And then it would happen again. So I played, we played this, this terrible game of me just trying to consume anything. And for a little bit, I would be able to consume something. And then it just got so bad in that eight mile stretch that I I started, I, so I told Keith, you know, I'm like, I don't, I feel funny, Keith, you know, I I don't. And he's like, no, you just need, as soon as we can get some calories in you, you're going to be fine. Just try to have a sip of water. So then I try, and then I just throw it right back up. Just try to have a little bit of goo or your bar or your chips, anything. I mean, we tried everything like, and we would wait between each one and I would just take a little. And then within a few minutes, it was just right back up. And it just kept getting worse and worse to the point where I said, please just stay close to me because I feel like I'm going to pass out. And by this point it's bad because I'm four miles from twin lakes and I'm four miles from the next aid station. And there's no roads there. There's nothing like I, I, I have to keep moving. And at this point, like groups of people are just passing me and passing me and passing me about halfway through my nausea bouts of throw up. I actually said, I just need to lay down and take a nap. I've never had anything like that happen. I literally just laid down on the forest dirt and just was like, I just have to lay here for a second and get my wits about me. So Keith would like cover me up with my blankets and all my stuff and like get me what I needed. And I I started convulsing, like things just got really bad. I mean, it was, it was scary. Um, and I just progressively, I progressively got a little slower. I progressively got a little worse. And, um, at that point for a long time, I thought I just still kept thinking, well, if if I could just stop throwing up, I could still power hike and screech in under 30 hours. So, you know, you, you go from your angles to your, Oh, it's fine. This slow, it's fine. This slow, it's fine. This slow to the reality that, that it probably just wasn't going to happen for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, there, there was lots of, we tried everything. Keith told me funny stories. I told him funny stories. We laughed about it. I cried about it. I kept moving. I kept using those dang poles, but it got to the point where there was like a steep drop off on one side. I was like worried because I couldn't really stay upright. Even with my poles, it was just, my energy was so low. I would start leaning over, Um, and you know, I would think that I, I I threw up 40 or 50 times, um, no exaggeration. So I just, I had nothing left to give. So did you get to a point in around 66, 67, 68, where it became not about keep moving, 
to see if we can finish, but it became like, look, I have to keep moving so I can like, so I can DNF like at an aid station, not just like in the middle of nowhere. Yep, it did. And I, I tried to explain that to Keith and he was like, no, you know, at first, and he was doing exactly what a pacer. I could not, I mean, that was a very vulnerable place to be. Right. Cause he has to stay beyond optimistic, right? He can't like any, let any hint of doubt come in. Exactly. And he's a multiple hundred mile finisher. He gets it. Like I actually am his coach. Like he's a phenomenal athlete. I was in good hands. He was doing everything right. I was just a shell. And I, the first time I told him that I was like, no, Keith, we have to make it to the aid station because like, it's not safe for me to be out here. He was just like, no, just get there. That was when my friend Rhett was going to pace me. Rhett will be there. She'll give you new life. Like you've got this, you know, like you just got to make it there and we'll sit you down in the warm tent and we'll get some food in you and you're going to hike it on in. And, and, and I, while I appreciated that, like it did become increasingly aware even to him that, and I let him know, I was like, Keith, I, I just need to get to the aid station because I'm afraid I'm going to pass out on the trail. Like I'm afraid you're going to, right now I'm worried you're going to have to carry me two miles. So right now it, it, it went from how can I finish the race to how can we safely get me to mile 70 so that I can be done. And he actually got a little bit of cell service, called my husband, called Graham, who knew where we were, who who's done the course himself. And it, they, they, they had me on, I was on speakerphone most of the time. And Graham hadn't heard me throw up and Keith calls Graham and I'm, I start barfing in the background. And then all of a sudden Keith takes me up. He says, Graham, I'm going to take you off speakerphone. And he walks away out of earsight. So I can't hear him. And I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> they won't let me hear what they're saying. It must be bad. Oh, and it was, it was heartbreaking, but I thought that I chose to, to DNF because I knew that I couldn't hold anything down. And And the sad thing was, is my legs felt great. They weren't sore. They weren't tired. I wanted to run and I, oh, I wanted to run with all my heart, but I thought that I was choosing to DNF, but those last two miles, I was sleeping on the trail so much and throwing up so much that I actually missed the cutoff. So I thought it was my choice, but it wasn't even my choice. Like I was out no matter what I, I, you know, I had chosen on my own to pull myself out of the, of the course because I just it was difficult to take a single step, to be perfectly honest. I remember because I had you on the tracker. Yeah. I was following along and I'm like, I I hope there's a technical issue. I hope there's a technical yeah. issue with the tracker. Um and you know, you're just kind of following along and you know, you're 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 doing the thing and and um you know you're hoping against hope, but you know, obviously you're you're aware that you know usually these things um there's a reason behind it. So once you got you know, you 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 get to 70. You don't have a choice. Like at that point, it's over and it was going to be over anyway. Like you mentioned, like you, you, it was just wasn't safe for you to be out there anymore. You mentioned that your legs actually felt fine. So as you progressed, you know, after you left the course and, you know, you, you do all the things in terms of like, you know, getting back with your husband and, 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 and doing all the things you need to do just to get off the course and kind of, you know, get back to your hotel or wherever you're staying at the time. Was it like, Walk me through some of the feelings here, because like on some level, like it must have been kind of like, oh, wow, like my legs actually felt pretty good. So like that was like that must I felt pretty positive in terms of like your preparation. And also at the same time being like, I didn't want to leave. Like I just couldn't stop throwing up like this. It, it You know, it's, it's almost like this, like this, un, this involuntary response that keeps happening. Like it's not like you had some sort of like mental failing here. Like so walk me through how you 
kind of like negotiated with yourself in terms of what, you know, walking, th- you know, getting through this because this was a huge goal that was years in the making. And yet it obviously didn't work out the way you wanted. But at the same time, it seems like, you know, while you had some some failings in terms of the salt and the headlamp, it also ultimately those things didn't seem to really to matter in terms of like what was ultimately going to happen anyway. Yeah. And this is like where I'm going to get a little bit emotional because of course, initially realizing at mile 70 that, you know, just sorry, excuse me, it wasn't going to happen. The first thing you do is just, it's human nature, even though I know it's not my fault, even though I know I've been literally quote as tough as I could be, you just feel those initial feelings. Like the very first thing I did was like apologize to Graham and apologize. You know, you've got three dear friends, one that flew in from Bend, Oregon, one that left her family for the weekend, another guy that left his family for the weekend, you know, like school starting, like people make big sacrifices. My mother-in-law flew in to watch my kids. So my initial thought is like, just like, you know, just letting people down, you know, letting your children down, letting your crew down, letting your family down, letting whoever's following you down, you know, as much as we can say that we know, you know, and of course they were all like that. You're not allowed to apologize to us, Randy, you know, clearly you've done everything you can there's just that initial feeling of feeling like I'm trying to think of the right word. And this is a fleeting thought and it doesn't last long because again, it's what we do with those thoughts and the moments and how we process them and how we allow them to sit in a moment and then let them go and say, you know, the, this is not the case. Almost like a poser, you know, like almost, I don't know that that's the right word, but a fraud. You feel like a fraud, like, Hey, look at me. I'm going to do this really incredible thing that I've worked so hard for. And like, I'm not a professional runner. I don't have the privilege. I don't have unlimited resources of time or money to go out and do all these races. So to put this much work and this much effort and to fall short and to know like that, you know, it wasn't my night, especially preparing as well as I did. It was, it was devastating, absolutely devastating. Um, But that being said, so many golden takeaways and going back to what you just asked about, like, I did everything in my power. It was beyond my control. In a way, it was a gift. It was like, I washed my hands clean. Like, I did everything that I could do. It wasn't my night. So as I processed that and I remembered that and I started taking away these golden takeaways, of hey, look what you did look how strong your fitness was uh, for the first half of the race. Look how well you were able to train and execute. Think of all the special miles you shared with incredible humans out there. Um, I believe, you know, I kept thinking about my kids and our, our children, if we don't have kids, our, our friends, our associates, we all need to see each other fail. It's an important part of life. If my children can't see that I'm going to fall short sometime, what happens when they fall short sometime? Right. And so being present and honoring the process and that it wasn't my day, it doesn't mean that I did. It doesn't make me less of as a human or as an athlete. It doesn't make me doesn't mean that I, well, I should have done this and I should have done that or I had no business being out there. It means it wasn't my day and that that and that that's okay, And that that happens to the best of us, whether it's running, whether it's a real life goal outside of any athletic endeavor we are going to fail and we are going to come up short and what can we take and learn and how can we grow from that? And so I I do think one of my talents is my ability to go from like a low to kind of remembering the nuggets and the good things. So I, I, 
I appreciate that I was able to recognize that fast. I appreciate all the wonderful text messages from athletes and friends and reminding me your fitness isn't lost. This wasn't, this wasn't a, this isn't a wash, you know, like there's so much good that comes from these experiences rather than just the race is the victory lap. The race is that final celebration. And maybe the celebration doesn't, didn't go the way that I want it. It didn't. And it sucks. It's hard. It really is. And we can, we can validate that and acknowledge that while at the same time going, you know what? I think because I trained for the Leadville 100, I'm probably a stronger trail athlete than I ever have been in my life. And look at that. And what can I do now? Absolutely. And it's, I can see like, I can see both sides too, where you'd be like, you have those races where you DNF and I don't even know if you've had a DNF before. Uh, I should have asked that question in the beginning, but those races were, oh, you're too. Okay. Um, just holding up two fingers. And people were like, Oh, one. how did I figure that out? <laughs> um, we're, we're on video here. Um, is that, you know, even if, if it's not a DNF, we have those races where we say, Oh my gosh, like when things got tough, I chose the easier path. I regret some of my decisions. I could have been tougher. I should have pushed. I didn't push. I just didn't want to hurt or I didn't think I was capable, but I was capable. And, and now I need to learn from that. And there's other experiences like the one you had where it's like, I don't know what I would have done differently. And it's kind of like, I can imagine some of, as some of those moments, you being being frustrated with that because it's like, I don't know what to change. Like, what do I change for the next thing? Because this has never happened before, but it was debilitating enough where it's like, I certainly don't want it to happen again. Yeah, certainly. And um, in the tent, when Graham, Graham went and got the car and my, my crew, Margaret, Rhett and Keith were with me waiting in the med tent. And when Graham got me, I don't know, I, it's all a little bit of a blur. I don't know if this happened in the med tent and the car or at the house in this just really vulnerable, raw, failing moment. He, he was like, could you have gone another step? I'm like, no, I couldn't have. I could not have gone another step. And that's when he said, please don't forget that. Because that's what we do in these moments where, like you said, whether maybe we did wimp out on another, on, in a situation, maybe we should have kept going, um, or maybe we couldn't, you will always question yourself, even if you know that was the right decision. So you have to stay present and process it in the moment and say, remember this decision. Remember you had your whole heart behind this. This was your only option. This was the right choice because in the coming days, people are going to ask you questions. You're going to question yourself. There's going to be self-doubt. There's going to be disappointment. There's going the to be pain, the shoulda, the coulda, pain woulda. dissipates. You forget what the pain felt like. Yeah. <laughs> I could have won state. I could have won state if I just did this different or I just did that different. And you can, but that's not necessary. You got to honor it. You got to own it and you got to move forward and you got to move through it. Yeah. And as someone who supports so many athletes, you probably, I'm sure you've probably vacillated back and forth between the feeling of like, okay, what would I tell my athlete who went through this versus like, what am I actually telling myself? Which is probably a lot more harsh in certain moments than some of the advice that you'd give to a friend or an athlete or someone along those lines. Sure. We're all, we are all hardest on ourselves, right? It's really easy to step back and look at somebody else's situation and recognize all the bright spots and give them all the encouragement and all the positivity in the world. But we at times can be our own worst critics. And um, it's definitely more difficult to apply those things to myself. But I am, like I said, circling back, I am, of course, disappointed, but I'm, I'm strangely at peace. And I think it's because I, I literally did everything I could. 
Well, thank you for sharing all of that because it's something that, you know, a lot of people don't like talking about. And I think it's, it's, it's so important that we hear these sorts of stories because we can all relate to them and also hearing, hearing and seeing somebody like you who's experienced so much and has accomplished so much as you detailed in the beginning, go through some of these things and seeing that like, Hey, like it's, it's really hard. It happens to everybody. Also, it didn't roll off your back. Obviously, it was, it's still an emotional experience for you and you're still dealing with it. And that's also an important factor, too, for a lot of people. So thank you so much for sharing this. This is instructive for so many people. Before we get out, I just want to ask you a couple of questions because you were there on a, on a, on a hallowed race course with some of the best trail and ultra athletes in the country. Um you see someone like Ann Tracing can drop like an 18-hour course record on this course, which is amazing. Claire Gallagher finished about an hour after that, and she's one of the best athletes of all time um, when it comes to this. When you look at like your 50-mile split, which was very, very good, and you obviously were feeling really strong at that point, some things that like are like, it's just hard for us to put these numbers, to quantify these numbers, right? Like you hear like someone made like a billion dollars last year. Like, I don't even know what that means, right? Yeah. Like, what is that? like, I know what $57,000 means. What does a billion dollars even mean? And I, I see like these ultra numbers. I, I feel like that same sort of like cognitive disconnection between what I'm seeing and what that actually means in practice. So when you see like Claire, Claire, like Claire Gallagher dropping like a 19 hour finishing time on this course as someone like you, who's run a 123 half, who's run a 303 marathon, who's won ultra marathons, how do you view that sort of athletic performance uh, within your own construct? Yeah. I mean, truly one of the highlights of the day was seeing Claire so I was going down Hope Pass the first time and she was coming back up it. And so I the was hardest like, part that you detailed, the, the part that like, you're like, it took me 44 minutes to do a mile. Yes. Yeah. She, she passed me when I was probably three miles from the 50 mile point. And so she's three miles this way. So I don't know, six ish miles between. And, and she was the first female that passed me. Cause I was counting. I counted how many men had gone by. Cause the first place guy passed me and, and like everybody. And it, honestly, it felt good to see those men working hard. Their heads were down. They were pale. Like it's just a hard, hard section of the course, but I passed Claire and I was like, I can't remember what I yelled at her. And I was like, you're amazing, Claire. And she yells, you're an effing badass. And I was like, no, you are. And then like, she was gone in a flash, but it just like lit a fire underneath. She looked so happy. Like I'm just blown away by what the human body can do. What these top, I mean, what these top level world-class athletes accomplish, like it's just phenomenal. And that's a cool thing about the Leadville 100 because it's an out and back course you get a front row seat myself as like an athlete. I get to, we get to high five and say hi and say, you know, go Claire, go whoever, you know, and that is super cool and super powerful. Um, now like to quantify what they do. I mean, you know, it blows me away. Um, I'm still, I feel like I'm still, I've only done one other hundred miler. So I feel like I'm still new to this distance. I am, trying to be a sponge and a student of the sport and learn as much as I can. Um, I am enamored with the longer ultra distances and I hope that I can continue to learn and grow and get stronger as a coach and an athlete. I think I've had like 600 mile athletes this summer, just absolutely tear up courses. And I, I just, it's like this magical wonderland that I am loving and just taking it all in. And so to be on a course like that, that in of itself was a total like 
gift just to watch them all do their thing. Absolutely. Randy, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Fun to chat with you, Matt. Randy, thank you so much for coming on the show again. I told you this was going to be a good one. I told you in the intro. And Randy, as always, delivers the goods. Thank you so much for listening to the Rambling Runner podcast and have a great day. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.